The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Welcome to the U.S. of Putin's dreams. This is Thursday, January 31st, 2019. Thank you for supporting this independent news by patronizing my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. Welcome back. I hope you're staying warm wherever you are. Oh, to just get away from it all. That's why more than 11 million Americans head for the hinterlands each year to appreciate the beauty of nature or just find a secluded spot in the woods. Maybe take in a giant redwood or a waterfall or a geyser or some really big, really old trees. One of the most unique parks in the U.S. is Joshua Tree in California. A former superintendent of that park, Carl Sauer, who's retired after seven years of service, says what's happened to our park is irreparable for the next two to three hundred years. He's talking about the damage left by the worst of us without supervision by park rangers during a 35-day government shutdown. This is why we can't have nice things. Vandalism, graffiti, and trails destroyed by vehicles that are never otherwise allowed on those trails. The worst of us even cut down some of those unique and beautiful Joshua trees in a park that belongs to all of us. So it could take up to two to three hundred years to repair and heal this unique place for getting away and enjoying nature. Three hundred years after a 35-day government shutdown that accomplished nothing but damage. Sure, we'll recover eight billion of the eleven billion dollars our economy lost in that shutdown, but three billion will not be recovered. It's gone. And while many government workers will get their back pay, many will not, including janitors, security guards, and cafeteria workers. The government's lowest paid workers, the ones hit hardest by the shutdown, have not and may not recover. The best educated and most experienced of our government workers have seen the writing on the wall and they won't be coming back, leading to a long-term brain drain in the federal government. None of this even begins to cover the financial cost of the shutdown, nor does it begin to cover the human hardships of the shutdown, nor will it bring back those beautiful Joshua trees anytime soon. And we may or may not have seen the last of the Trump shutdowns. The next one could be just two weeks away. Right off the bat, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines the word emergency as an unforeseen combination of circumstances that calls for immediate action. For at least two months, the president has described security at the southern U.S. border as an emergency. And the only solution he truly supports is a border wall that would take at least 10 years to build. But the wall also happens to be a campaign promise he made, and one that he's been so determined to keep, he willfully shut down crucial parts of the federal government for more than a month to hold out for that wall. Even though it was originally pitched to him by advisors as just a way to remember to talk about immigration at his rallies, the crowd of red hats loved the idea and chanted, Build the wall! This mnemonic device, this memory trick, became an actual wall. Something his supporters could visualize, something real and solid and tangible. As this still new year began, with the halfway mark of this presidential term fast approaching, Trump started threatening to declare the influx of immigrants at the border a national emergency in which he could use the broad powers that come with such a declaration to spend military construction money on building a wall. When we met like this last week, the government shutdown was already more than a month long. And in the heat of the standoff, Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi had shut down his planned State of the Union speech. A lot happened in the week that led up to today. Still, Trump's threatening another shutdown in two weeks if he doesn't get his wall.
or he'll declare an emergency. Republicans and Democrats are working for a compromise, but Trump says without a wall in the plan, they're wasting their time. Without a wall, he says he will declare the border a national emergency or shut down the government again. He said his threshold for issuing that declaration would be, quote, if I can't make a deal with people that are unreasonable. So it's an emergency only if he can't make a deal. That's a strategy, not an emergency. Losing a political battle is not an emergency. And judging from Webster's definition of the word, an emergency isn't something you talk about for months without taking action, nor is it something you only act upon when negotiations don't go your way. Trump had talked about the wall since before he was president and had two years of a Republican-controlled Congress to build it. The wall became an emergency after he took a beating in the midterms and lost the House to Democrats. Trump has undercut his own argument that the need to build the wall is an emergency. If or when such a declaration is challenged in court, and it will be, Trump will likely lose because he has undercut his own case. Still, he presses on as build-the-wall chants still ring in his ears. The White House has already drawn up that emergency declaration, which awaits his signature. And the White House says it's found $7 billion it could use to build the wall, most of it from the Pentagon, and $200 million from Homeland Security, ironically. So a week later, a government shutdown still looms, as does the threat of an emergency declaration. But the deal to reopen government was only good for three weeks, and one of those weeks is almost up. Despite Trump's apparent negotiating failure, acting chief of staff Mick Mulvaney says Trump would be willing to shut down government again to get his wall money before that last resort of an emergency declaration. Over a wall the majority of Americans do not want, by a president a majority of Americans do not like. When it comes to shutting down government over a wall, the more things changed this past week, the more they stayed the same. The ghost-written book, The Art of the Deal, portrays Trump as a master dealmaker. It's how he marketed himself for years through People magazine and the like, and yes, even the New York Times. It got him his own TV show in which he could play the part of a master of enterprise and a captain of industry, even as New York banks had stopped lending him money because he didn't repay his loans. Trump would use his public reputation as a business savant to set up a be-rich-like-me business school that ultimately settled a fraud lawsuit after cheating thousands of students out of, in some cases, their life savings. After insulting the judge in that case, the judge's ethnicity and challenging the judge's impartiality and bellowing that he would never settle, Trump folded and ultimately paid $25 million to make it all go away. The students who accused him of fraud got as much as 90% of their money back once he was forced to cave on his insistence that he would never settle. And that's not the first or only time Trump's negotiating tactics or his heavily promoted business knowledge have failed. See also his six business bankruptcies. We review this information not for the purpose of trolling the president, but for context. It's a good thing to know when talking about Trump's standoff with Democrats over a wall. In a stare-down with Speaker Pelosi, Trump blinked twice. Once when she canceled his State of the Union speech and he went along, and again on reopening the government without his wall money. The former host of The Apprentice and the co-author of The Art of the Deal, the man elected in part by a reputation created to make him look like a savvy businessman, blinked twice. Pressure was building on Trump. 
His approval rating had dropped to as low as it's ever been, and low ratings used to be his weapon against others. He never expected that phrase to be associated with him. Nearly 6 in 10 voters do not approve of him, and nearly that many don't want his wall, nor do they want a government shutdown, according to a Washington Post-ABC News poll. Only 36% think he's a good negotiator, according to an NBC Wall Street Journal poll. It goes down from there. Fewer than one in three of us think he's experienced or knowledgeable enough to be president. Fewer than one in three think he's trustworthy or honest. Not even one in four think he has high ethical standards. The man who promised so much winning, we'd be tired of it, was losing. Among voters, as well as in Washington. Public sentiment was a big part of the overall pressure on Trump to stand down from his hostage-taking of the government in exchange for a wall. And then, as if things could not get worse for the president, they did. By his own hand, and by top members of his administration. As hardship stories about the 800,000 unpaid federal workers poured in from across the country, the Trump administration was anything but empathetic. Many of the people not getting paid are totally in favor of what we're doing, he claimed. But the millionaires and billionaires who occupy the president's cabinet were even more careless. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, in his $600 embroidered slippers, said he, quote, really didn't understand why. Government workers would be visiting food banks after going unpaid for more than a month. Ross suggested they take advantage of the interest-free loans banks were offering to furloughed federal workers. Many of the workers had already run up their credit cards during that 35 days, and the last thing they needed was another payment, interest-free or not, once the paycheck started up again. And why should they have to? Trump agreed with reporters that perhaps Ross should have said it differently. But in almost the same breath, Trump added that grocery stores would go easy on the people who couldn't afford to pay. There are few known cases of a food market letting anyone leave with a full cart on the promise of a future payment. Trump economic advisor Larry Kudlow assured the workers the shutdown was, quote, just a glitch. Trump, Kudlow, and Trump daughter-in-law, Lara, portrayed working without pay as an act of sacrifice and patriotism and volunteerism for the future of the country, said Lara Trump. They honor us by their service, said Goodlow. Chief White House economist Kevin Hassett said he was unaware of how the federal pay schedule works. If the Trump administration seemed not to care about 800,000 unpaid workers, it was because they failed to even understand the effects the shutdown was having on people and their families. In an administration of millionaires and billionaires, the people suffering went almost unnoticed. That approach did not end well for Marie Antoinette, as pointed out by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And all that amid those already falling poll numbers. And then, even as Trump threatened another shutdown on February 15th, the pressure on him to free his hostage and get nothing in return increased again. On Friday, we learned that more than half the furloughed IRS workers ordered to return to work had refused that order. Without a paycheck, two actually, they weren't inclined to dive into the five million tax forms that were pouring in. The workers who refused that order have the right to do so, thanks to their union contract, which includes a hardship clause. Not getting paid twice is a hardship for most people. But the prospect of a public angry about delayed tax refunds because of a wall argument was unsettling to the Trump administration. And with the start of the filing season this week, the word was out that 14,000 IRS workers were not coming to work, and the fewer than half who had reported to their desks were also not getting paid. 
the sick out by unpaid government workers who couldn't afford the commute or the parking or those who had to find money in other work was spreading in a politically frightening way for the president and his Republican Party. But the pressure would build on Trump to cave even more. The dominoes of an unfunded government began to fall in a more immediate and troubling way. All across the northeastern part of the country, flight delays were adding up. Thousands of flights were delayed and delayed again. In addition to the growing number of TSA screeners calling out sick, air traffic controllers were doing the same in proportionate numbers. Flight attendants joined them. The government stable of air traffic controllers was depleted even before the shutdown, partly because of previous shutdowns and funding cuts. The controllers were worried about their missing paychecks, which they worried would make them less focused on keeping the skies safe for air travel. With so many controllers out, the pace of takeoffs and landings slowed, and planes were being rerouted as some air traffic centers were unable to handle the traffic. The vanishing of air safety would be about as popular with the public as a delayed tax refund. It was at this point, and not a moment before, that Trump caved and agreed to sign a bill that reopened the government, even if it meant that would not be the way he would get the wall he promised. The one he still claims would be funded by Mexico, apparently after taxpayers front him the money. On Friday, after being humbled by Pelosi, besieged with news reports about the people he'd put in food lines and under the threat of delayed tax refunds and airline disasters, the president released his hostage and signed a bill to reopen the government and get no wall in return. He vowed to return to fight again another day, insisting there will be a wall. Trump's alleged business skills were not morphing into political skills. His approval rating had fallen more. His campaign worried his 2020 chances might not be as good as he expected. He had lost to Pelosi twice. She told him when he could not give his speech and when he could With government back open, she scheduled it for February 5th, just 10 days before his deadline for a wall or another shutdown or an emergency declaration. The Democratic response will be delivered by Stacey Abrams, who, despite her recent narrow defeat in the Georgia governor's race, is considered a rising blue star. Giving that response will make Stacey Abrams even more prominent. She will be the first black woman to give the Democratic response to a Republican president's State of the Union address. Trump had failed to get his wall or even hold on to his hostage. The shutdown had cost the country billions more than his nearly $6 billion wall. He had lost his bet that Democrats would cave first. Ann Coulter, who once worshipped him, abandoned him, calling him the wimpiest president ever, giving up like that. Fox News and conservative websites proclaimed Trump the loser in his standoff with Pelosi. He had to listen to Lou Dobbs say he'd been whipped by Pelosi. The Republican support Trump needs in Congress was eroding. A half dozen Republicans voting with Democrats to defy Trump at one point. While Democrats stood united behind the leadership of Nancy Pelosi. Behind the scenes, the Washington Post reports Republican Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin told Senate Leader Mitch McConnell, this is your fault. Are you suggesting I'm enjoying this, demanded McConnell? While Republicans sniped at each other behind closed doors, Democrats stood in unanimous solidarity. Having divided the country, Trump was now dividing his own party in Congress and asking aides why Democrats are more loyal than Republicans. Still, Republican lawmakers followed him into history's longest shutdown that time. They don't appear to be up for a return trip, but they also fear the wrath of Trump's red-hatted base. In politics, this is not winning. 
The shutdown that accomplished nothing will have lasting effects on our perception of government and the security of government jobs. And there's that $3 billion we'll never recover. There will be no back pay for federal contractors who haven't been paid since before Christmas and who lost their health insurance in the process and who now cannot get the medications they need to live. It feels like we are still hostages, said one contract worker. A binding contract with the U.S. government, you figure that's worth something, said another. Nearly 10,000 companies had active contracts with the government that went unpaid during the shutdown. 10,000. 6,000 of those are small businesses that Republicans say they covet. Quoting a 32-year veteran of the IRS, this is my fifth shutdown. This will be my last. Now I want out, he says, opting for early retirement. I'm done with this merry-go-round of uncertainty, he says. He says President Kennedy inspired him to do for his country. He says Trump has killed that inspiration. I'm ashamed to admit it, he says. I've been crying over this. Trump also ended his shutdown as the Russia investigation moved closer to him through three of his top former advisors. Fixer lawyer Michael Cohen had postponed his voluntary public testimony to the House Oversight Committee in fear of the public threats from Trump and Rudy Giuliani concerning his family. House lawmakers responded by saying they would subpoena Cohen to testify and get him and his family extra protection. But the Senate beat him to the punch. The Senate Intelligence Committee has now subpoenaed Cohen to testify February 12th, week after next. That testimony will not be public. It will not be on TV. Also noteworthy, this is the Senate, which is controlled by Republicans, which is why Republican Senator Richard Burr is chairman of the Intelligence Committee. Instead of being subpoenaed by Democrats, Cohen was being subpoenaed by Republicans to tell them and the Democrats what he's told special counsel Robert Mueller now that Cohen admits his previous testimony was mostly lies to cover for Trump. Senate Intelligence Committee Chairman Richard Burr has been far more open to investigating Russian interference than was his former Republican counterpart in the House, Devin Nunes. Burr has worked impressively and closely and fairly with the ranking Democrat on that committee, Virginia Senator Mark Warner. House Democrats say they will still issue subpoenas as well from two committees for hearings to be conducted behind closed doors to protect the Mueller investigation, to protect sensitive national security secrets, and to help protect Michael Cohen. The House Intelligence Committee will bring in Cohen for testimony a week from tomorrow, February 8th. The House Oversight Committee has already subpoenaed Cohen for testimony a week from today on February 7th, tentatively. That was the original date from which he had postponed, worried about the safety of himself and his family. The Democrat-controlled House Intelligence Committee says it's working with law enforcement to protect them all. Even with all three of Cohen's upcoming congressional appearances held behind closed doors and without TV coverage, you can count on Democrats revealing what they can. Time grows short for Cohen to answer such questions since he has to report to prison on March 6th to start serving his six-year sentence for violating tax laws and campaign finance laws. His truthfulness this time around could reduce that prison sentence. Stay tuned for what we will be allowed to see and hear. One thing that won't happen next week, as expected, is the sentencing of Trump 2016 campaign boss Paul Manafort. Manafort had been scheduled for sentencing on Friday, February 8th, the same day of Cohen's Intelligence Committee testimony. But the judge in Manafort's foreign agent case has now delayed that sentencing to give a different judge in a separate Manafort case time to decide whether Manafort did in fact break his plea deal with the special counsel by repeatedly lying and sharing what he'd learned with the White House. 
If Manafort is found to have broken his plea deal, it will add another 7 to 10 years to the 10 years he's already facing for acting as an unregistered foreign agent. At age 69 now, Paul Manafort would likely die in prison. In the pre-dawn darkness of Friday morning, just before the air traffic slowdowns had become apparent, the president's longtime friend and advisor Roger Stone was awakened by a solid pounding on his front door, followed by the words, FBI, open the door, FBI, warrant. At Stone's house in Fort Lauderdale, FBI agents were wearing tactical gear and carrying high-powered weapons as they pounded on his door at around 6 a.m. at the direction of Robert Mueller and with a search warrant issued by a judge. In such a dramatic raid, Mueller was sending a message to those who might mess with his investigation. And since there are quieter ways to arrest someone, Mueller may have also been angry. He was certainly taking no chances. Mueller had issued a sealed indictment the day before, sealed so that Stone wouldn't know the feds were coming. Mueller convinced a judge there was reason to think Stone would try to destroy evidence if the indictment were revealed before that pre-dawn raid in tactical gear. After the sealed indictment was filed, CNN wisely staked out Stone's house with a camera crew to capture the raid on that house. As that dramatic video went viral, legal experts and reporters were reading and rereading it to understand as much as they could about this dramatic development. First, know that this is the closest Mueller has gotten to Trump so far. Stone had advised Trump for years, and Trump kept listening. The admitted political dirty trickster with a tattoo of Nixon on his back, according to Mueller's indictment, tried to get his hands on stolen Democratic emails to hurt Clinton and help Trump. He did this at about the same time candidate Trump publicly called on Russia to find Clinton's emails, and within hours, Russian hackers were trying. Documents show Stone had been in close contact with the Trump campaign, even though he had no official role in it. Stone had also been in contact with WikiLeaks, which published the emails stolen by Russia, and Stone predicted the surfacing of those emails not long before it happened. Stone pursued those emails even after U.S. intelligence had investigated and publicly revealed that Russia was behind the hacking. In other words, Stone knew, and top officials in the Trump election campaign knew. And according to Mueller's indictment of Roger Stone, at least one of those top officials encouraged Stone to get those emails. Even with the few brushstrokes we've seen so far, Mueller is clearly painting a picture of a campaign eager for help from a hostile foreign government. Former close advisor Roger Stone was allegedly directed to get the emails stolen by Russia by other top officials in the Trump campaign, the names likely belonging to former top advisor Steve Bannon and the president's son, Don Jr., Stone also tried to get WikiLeaks to time the release of those stolen emails to follow the breaking news that Trump had been recorded by Access Hollywood saying he liked to grab women by their genitals. This did not go unnoticed, this odd coincidence, that the emails dropped less than an hour after the news broke about the Access Hollywood tape. Mueller has texts and emails to prove this, and he has the testimony of former Stone associate Jerome Corsi, who says he is, quote, happy to testify against Roger Stone. The Mueller indictment of Roger Stone also points out that WikiLeaks planned to leak emails suggesting Hillary Clinton was seriously ill. Interestingly, Fox News host Sean Hannity talked about it for days after that, after being tipped off by Roger Stone and a Stone associate who says he was in touch with WikiLeaks which Trump's own Secretary of State has described as a hostile intelligence service. Sean Hannity was the mystery client we'd heard about early in the Michael Cohen case. Matt Drudge had this so-called story 
even sooner. For now, Stone's accused of lying, obstruction, and witness tampering in seven federal felony counts included in his 24-page indictment that mentions the Trump campaign 24 times. Stone stupidly wrote self-incriminating emails coaching a congressional witness with a text that began, Stone wallet, anything to save the plan, Richard Nixon. When the witness ignored these instructions and told the truth anyway, Stone wrote, You're a rat, a stoolie. You backstab my friends. Run your mouth. My lawyers are dying to rip you to shreds. He even threatened the witness's little therapy dog. Stone is not charged with conspiring with anyone, yet. This indictment does not address any attempts to get the email simply to make sure they were made public. Out on a quarter million dollars bail after his arrest, Stone toured the news talk shows to say he will plead not guilty and that he will not testify against the president, that under no circumstance would he lie to get a better plea deal. It was Stone who first pitched the Trump campaign on the idea of hiring Paul Manafort as campaign manager. And like Manafort, Stone's talking like a guy who will never flip, and perhaps he won't. But prosecutors don't always include everything they know about a suspect in that original indictment. Aside from offering Stone a better deal, the special counsel may have other evidence on Stone that it can use to threaten a tougher sentence if he refuses to tell the truth. Fort Lauderdale, Florida has its own federal court building, and that's where Stone entered his initial plea of not guilty yesterday morning. But Stone has changed his story as the investigation moved closer to him, and there are indications the story may change again. Stone says that while maintaining his allegiance to Trump, he said he might even cooperate with special counsel Mueller. Stone also has not ruled out a plea deal, but says he cannot guarantee he'll remember every detail from 2016. Roger Stone was a very busy man back then. Roger Stone is not the only person super close to Donald Trump who was in touch with WikiLeaks at around the time the stolen emails were dumped. And it appears that at least one other person, someone perhaps even closer to Trump, had lied to Congress about it. That person is the president's eldest son, Donald Trump Jr. Private Twitter messages now in the hands of Robert Mueller show that WikiLeaks expected in return for this favor to the Trump campaign that its founder, Julian Assange, be named as Australia's ambassador to the United States. Don Jr. wrote at one point, What's behind this Wednesday leak I keep reading about? Wrote that to WikiLeaks. The next day, Roger Stone tweeted, Wednesday, Hillary Clinton is done. Donald Trump Sr. told his supporters that week, I love WikiLeaks. Don Jr. tweeted a link to the WikiLeaks dump of stolen emails. The first official suspicion that Donald Trump Jr. had lied to Congress appeared eight months ago. It was in May of last year that Delaware Democrat Chris Coons on the Senate Judiciary Committee wrote that Jr. may have provided false testimony in his closed-door appearance before that committee nine months before that. Coons wrote this in a letter to his committee chairman, Republican Chuck Grassley, that Jr.'s testimony had been contradicted by various news reports about a meeting between Don Jr., an emissary for a couple of Arab princes, and a contractor who had also donated richly to the Trump campaign. The meeting appears to have been about how the Arab world could help Trump get elected and what it might get in return. Accepting campaign help from a foreign government is a serious federal felony. So is lying to Congress. Senator Coons asked Chairman Grassley to bring Jr. back before the committee to clear up those discrepancies. That never happened, 
despite the harsh penalties we've seen play out this week for lying to Congress. And lying to Congress about foreign influence and fielding proposals from, as Trump Secretary of State Mike Pompeo describes it, a hostile intelligence service. And the Senate Judiciary Committee wasn't the only congressional committee to which Donald Trump Jr. may have lied. Last year, while the House Intelligence Committee was still under Republican control, Jr. testified for seven hours, and there are transcripts of all of it. The hearing was about Jr.'s contacts with WikiLeaks and about the Trump Tower meeting he couldn't wait to have with a Russian lawyer offering supposed dirt on Hillary Clinton. If it's what you say, he stupidly wrote in an email, I love it. Accepting campaign help from a foreign government is a serious federal felony, as is lying about it to Congress. Special Counsel Robert Mueller needs the transcripts from that hearing if he hopes to prove that Trump Jr. lied to Congress. And now that the House Intelligence Committee is under Democratic control, there is nothing new Chairman Adam Schiff would like more than to give those transcripts to Mueller. But he can't do that without a committee vote. And Chairman Schiff still does not quite yet have a quorum. That's because although House Republican leadership had assigned all the seats on more than two dozen other committees, they had made no assignments to the Intelligence Committee that wants to give those transcripts to Mueller. That changed yesterday, but it will still be days before the Republican members are sworn in. Republicans, by delaying these appointments, also delayed for two weeks the committee getting those closed-door hearing transcripts of Don Jr. and others to Special Counsel Mueller. As Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff explains it, so Mueller can file felony perjury charges, apparently against the president's son. And you can't get much closer to the president than that. Their tactic brought Republicans another two-week delay in the Mueller investigation, putting off any more indictments for at least those two weeks. But NBC News reports that some members of the committee are suggesting that Mueller may have already seen those transcripts informally, but still couldn't do anything legally about them. Mueller needs a copy of his own so he can get those perjury indictments. And the earliest Congress can officially give him that copy now is next Tuesday. Acting Attorney General Matt Whitaker glistened in the light as beads of perspiration covered his face and his shaved bald head. Never confirmed by the Senate, Whitaker's a placeholder in the job left vacant by the firing of Jeff Sessions. Acting A.G. Whitaker stood before the cameras for a news conference about the theft of patented U.S. technology by a Chinese phone maker. But reporters got him to talk about the Mueller probe, which he has criticized sharply, back when he was, in his words, a private citizen who didn't have all the facts. But he remains a loyal Trump supporter. Under those beads of sweat on Monday, Whitaker said he had seen Mueller's work and that he could safely say the Russia investigation is nearly over. He cannot safely say that. First, and he apparently realized this too late, he isn't supposed to comment on open investigations as he just had. As soon as Whitaker said the words nearly complete, a career Justice Department official abruptly announced, that's all the time for today, thank you. Inexperienced and overwhelmed, Whitaker was escorted from the room where he could wipe away those glistening beads without the cameras present. He may want to consider a handkerchief when he goes before the lawmakers on February 8th, the same day as Michael Cohen. And Whitaker may not be able to get out of that appearance, as he had expected, perhaps. His expected permanent replacement at the Justice Department is William Barr, 
who has also made remarks critical of the Mueller probe and who has refused to say if he would recuse himself or whether he would listen to ethics advisors or whether he would release the full Mueller report. Barr was due to be confirmed early next week, but that confirmation had been delayed by Democrats concerned that Barr will try to stop the investigation and refuse to make public what it's found. Barr will still likely be confirmed, but not as soon as he or Trump or Matt Whitaker had hoped. There won't even be a committee hearing on Barr until February 7th, one week from today, the same day Michael Cohen testifies before the Oversight Committee. As I said, busy days ahead. In the meantime, Whitaker could be wrong about the Mueller investigation being nearly complete. A last-minute witness can lead to five more. And Mueller may or may not be satisfied with the written answers he's just received from Trump's Russia lawyers. The Mueller team is now reviewing Trump's answers as it decides whether it still wants a face-to-face with the president or whether it's ready to dot the I's and cross the T's and wrap the whole thing up. In the meantime, it appears to be indictment season. Former CIA Director John Brennan says he expects to see a significant number of indictments in the next eight weeks, rich in detail and naming names. Quoting Brennan, I expect a significant number of names that will be quite familiar to the average American. The average American waits to hear if one or more of those names is Trump. And that puts Congress in a tough spot. The impeachment and conviction of a president is tantamount to overturning the will of the people under our electoral college system. Impeachment is the ultimate nuclear option in government. The House can impeach with a simple majority. The Senate can convict with a two-thirds majority. Carlos Lozada writes in the Washington Post that the Founding Fathers put a lot of thought into dealing with a future president who might be in it for personal profit or in cahoots with a foreign government. But a president doesn't even have to commit high crimes and misdemeanors to qualify for impeachment. It could simply be for misdeeds that, quote, so seriously threaten the order of political society as to make dangerous the continuance in power of the perpetrator. One scholar wrote that abuse of power is also grounds for impeachment. Another wrote that impeachment is a legal process and by nature also a political process. Clinton was impeached for lying about extramarital sex, but not convicted or removed from office. That was politics. Nixon was impeached for high crimes and misdemeanors, but resigned before he could be convicted and removed from office. Politics were a factor, but Nixon's impeachment was about crime. In no case was a president ever removed from office just for being the object of anger and hatred. And because of the politics, impeachment is an idea that has to be sold to members of both parties in Congress and to the American people. And that's where it gets tricky. The latest polls show that roughly 6 in 10 of us want Mueller to dig into Trump's finances and his foreign connections. But most voters oppose the commencement of impeachment proceedings against Trump. Half of us have only some confidence, or none, that Mueller's report will be fair. Skeptics believe the report will be political. Only 43% of us say they have a great deal or good amount of confidence in the fairness of Mueller's final report. 55% of us at the moment are opposed to impeachment hearings, while only 40% want them. Six months ago, 49% of us wanted impeachment, so the latest numbers represent a nearly 10% drop in enthusiasm for that idea. Now, knowing this, the newly empowered House Democrats plan to step lightly. They know that Congress itself has an even lower rating than the president, lower than that of the news media, really, really low. 
to sell impeachment to their Republican counterparts and to the American people. Democrats know their investigations need to be about facts with as little politics as possible. That'll be tough with a president who has so sharply divided this nation politically. He won't go without a fight. His supporters won't let him go without a fight. And if Trump were to be removed from office for anything short of outrageous criminality, America would not be a quiet place. Life in these United States would not instantly become easier. And if the attempt to remove Trump were to fail as it did by one vote in the Senate in the attempt to remove Andrew Jackson, a dangerous president could become even more dangerous. Not attempting to impeach also has its consequences, such as the ones outlined here every week. There is hope in the impeachment of Nixon, who had the Senate and his Republican voters eating out of his hands in July 1974. By the next month, he'd lost nearly all of them. Quoting one scholar, why did so many Americans change their minds so quickly? Because the facts changed. And impeachment, done properly, is about getting the facts. It's not unusual or illegal for a president-elect or his people to reach out to foreign governments as the incoming administration prepares its foreign policy. And that raises the question, why did Trump's people all lie to Congress and the FBI about their contacts with Russians if it's legal? Maybe that's because they had heard, as the rest of us had, that Russia was conducting a cyber-based attack on the 2016 election process, hacking American computers and hacking American minds with divisive propaganda. Or maybe they just lied about Russia's role to try to protect the legitimacy of Trump's electoral college victory. Whatever the case, it was the lying that started the investigation and gave it fuel. It was the lying that led to a bigger apparent crime. Quoting former Trump aide Sam Nunberg, they conspired against themselves. To a man, Trump's people went before Congress or sat with the FBI agents and lied about what we now know were the 100 contacts with Russian nationals and WikiLeaks. It was Russia that had stolen the Democratic emails on Trump's public invitation to do so. And it was WikiLeaks that released those emails, all for the purpose of further damaging Clinton and dividing Democrats by urging Sanders voters to stay home on Election Day. We now know 17 Trump campaign officials engaged in these contacts with Russia, WikiLeaks, or both. These 17 officials include... All the best people, Michael Cohen, Donald Trump Jr., Paul Manafort, Mike Flynn, Jared Kushner, Roger Stone, and Donald J. Trump himself. Following the indictment of Roger Stone, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler tweeted, What did the president know and when did he know it? Echoing a line from the final days of Richard Nixon. It's been almost three months since the Trump administration declared that the poisoning in Britain of an ex-Russian spy was a violation of international chemical weapons law. Three months later, the Trump administration still has not imposed on Russia the sanction the law requires for such violations. Last week, the European Union punished Russia with sanctions, but the Trump administration has yet to act. The Donald Trump, Mike Pompeo State Department says there is no deadline for imposing these sanctions. But there is now pressure from the top Democrat on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Bob Menendez has written Pompeo to remind him that the sanctions are two months overdue, adding that he is already deeply concerned that they have not been implemented. Menendez is likely to get support from Republicans who forced Trump to start sanctions on Russia shortly after the poisoning of Sergei Skripal. 
I've been tougher on Russia than anybody else, said Trump, adding nobody's been as tough as I have. If the administration's sanctions on Russia are anything like the last batch, the Kremlin can open another bottle of champagne. Claiming it was somehow tough on Russia, the Trump administration has lifted sanctions on three Russian companies, including the one owned by Oleg Deripaska, friend of both Vladimir Putin and Trump campaign boss Paul Manafort. The lifting of sanctions on Deripaska took him out from under hundreds of millions of dollars of debt and left him in control of the giant aluminum company that's so important to Mr. Putin. Steven Mnuchin, in the Treasury Department, worked with Russia to find a solution to those original sanctions after delaying them for as long as possible and assuring Russia that this was to change Deripaska's behavior, not run him out of business. We mustn't be too hard on the country that attacked us successfully in the 2016 election. Quoting former U.S. Ambassador to Russia Richard McFaul, score that a win for Putin. Stepping back from this, Russia's Vladimir Putin is running up the scoreboard. And the President of the United States is helping him do it. At a moment he needed to lift some of the Russia heat, Trump told the American people that because Russia was misbehaving in Ukraine, he would not meet with Vladimir Putin when the two of them joined other world leaders at the G20 summit in Argentina at the end of November. The Kremlin had announced Trump and Putin would meet. To show he is no puppet, the president told the American people there would be no meeting. The Kremlin repeated that there would. And then, in Argentina, Trump and Putin met privately, and this time there was no American translator present. Except for Melania, there were no other Americans present as there have been in every such meeting between a modern U.S. president and a foreign leader, much less the leader of our greatest adversary. There are usually several Americans present to protect the president from being compromised. There was a Russian present taking notes, a translator for Putin, although as a KGB veteran, Putin knows English very well. We recently learned after one such meeting that Trump had ordered the American translator to hand over his notes and to say nothing about what had been discussed. To this day, there is no record of any of the half-dozen private meetings between Putin and Trump. Our history books will never know what happened in those meetings because the U.S. has no record of them as it has had with every other president. But Russia knows. It has records of those meetings. But the Kremlin has no comment on this. U.S. intelligence sources say Russia undoubtedly has audio recordings of those Trump-Putin meetings. That came up at this week's Senate hearing to hear the annual assessment from our top intelligence officials of the various threats to the U.S. from around the world. When Director of National Intelligence Dan Coach was asked if he was concerned about this lack of information about the Trump-Putin meetings. Clearly, said Director Coates, this is a sensitive issue we ought to talk about this afternoon in the closed-door session. When it came to Trump and Putin, Director Coates, CIA Chief Gina Haspel, made it clear they were eager to answer these questions once the cameras were gone and anyone without security clearance was out of the room. But our top national intelligence officials were comfortable with speaking publicly their views on some of Trump's key foreign policy issues. They were comfortable warning the lawmakers that Russia is working more closely with China than the two have worked in nearly 65 years. They warned that together, Russia and China are determined to gain technological and military superiority over the United States, to unseat the U.S. as a world leader, and to make this democracy thing crumble worldwide. 
They warn in their report for the first time this year that China has the ability through hacking to take out natural gas pipelines for weeks, that Russia has hacked its way into the U.S. electrical companies, allowing Russia to shut down our power for hours at least. It's no longer speculation. They have the ability right now for the first time. The CIA director and the intelligence director were joined in this warning by FBI Director Christopher Wray. DNI Chief Dan Coates, speaking for the entire group of intelligence officials, told the lawmakers the greatest outside threats to the U.S. are Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea. These officials in their annual briefing went on to say that the president is wrong about ISIS, wrong about Iran, and wrong about North Korea, that what he's been telling the American people is untrue. While Trump claims ISIS has been defeated in Syria, our intelligence officials say ISIS has been waiting for a moment such as the one provided by Trump pulling U.S. troops out of Syria. There are also fears of another rise of the Taliban, and now that Trump is pulling the U.S. out of Afghanistan. And there are fears that both of these withdrawals will invite more ISIS and Taliban terrorist attacks here on U.S. soil. On Trump's claim that the Iran nuclear deal had to be scrapped because Iran couldn't be trusted, our top experts testified under oath that Iran continues to live up to the terms of that deal after Trump pulled the U.S. out of it. Separately, by the way, the Pentagon's worried about a request by Trump National Security Advisor John Bolton for military options for punishing Iran for its mischief in Syria and elsewhere. The Pentagon's worried Bolton might set off a Middle East-based world war. And on Trump's claim that North Korea no longer poses a nuclear threat, our intelligence chief said that too is false. In about a month, Trump will sit down again with Kim Jong-un. And on Trump's claim that there is a national security crisis at our southern border, they said, no, there isn't. It would seem to be hard to justify declaring a national emergency for something the intelligence people who are trying to keep us safe say isn't a crisis at all. The next day, Trump called our top intelligence people, people chosen by him, passive and naive, and said they need to go back to school. Democrats in Congress are insisting the intelligence chiefs stand up to Trump, even though they'll likely be no more successful than those who have tried before them. For Trump, there's no changing his mind about the crisis at the border that doesn't exist. The president has spoken obsessively about women kidnapped for sex trafficking, their mouths taped shut as they were stuffed into vehicles that are, to use his word, unbelievable, stronger, bigger, faster vehicles than our police and border patrol have. He claimed border agents had found Muslim prayer rugs in the southern desert. Journalists questioned these claims, so the White House ordered the border patrol to find some cases that backed them up. Couldn't find any. No one knew where this taping women and racing them across the border in supercars business came from. We now know. The president, who doesn't listen to his own experts, had come to these conclusions about abducted women in super-fast cars from a movie he saw. The movie is called Sicario, Day of the Soldado, starring Josh Brolin and Benicio Del Toro, currently showing on stars. Rotten Tomatoes gives the movie three stars out of five. In it, Women are taped, stuffed into vehicles, and raced across the border. And in this work of fiction, border agents find prayer rugs in the desert. The President of the United States is ignoring reality and accepting in its place a work of fiction 
and calling it a national emergency for which he is willing to shut down the government. Again. Oh, and a check by the Washington Post shows that there was nothing special about the cars in the movie he saw. Just standard assembly line vehicles, according to reporters' research. On Friday, the U.S. started sending back to Mexico some of the people applying for asylum here. The Trump administration wants no longer for asylum seekers to wait here in the U.S. for their cases to come up in an extremely backlogged court process. Mexico has agreed to this, even as the Trump administration claims there are smugglers and human traffickers like the ones in the movies among the people pleading for U.S. protection from crime and violence in their home countries. The new policy by the Trump administration is being challenged in court. And then the next day, on Saturday, the Washington Post reported that Trump's golf course in Westchester County, New York, had, in the middle of political wrangling over his wall, started firing the undocumented workers it's been employing. Among the first dozen fired were employees who had worked more than a decade for the Trump Organization, including those who had won Employee of the Month awards at that golf course, including those trusted enough to carry the keys to Eric Trump's weekend home there. They knew that when the president orders chicken wings, he wants a double order delivered on just one plate. Those people were fired. These are the people who got fired as Trump started cleaning house of his house cleaners, groundspeople, guards, and food service people. There had been reports of this sort about Trump's golf course in New Jersey as well. But in the middle of the wall fight, Trump's company finally took action. These Latinos were fine during the campaign in which Trump railed about undocumented workers and they were still fine when he became president. But with the spotlight on immigrants in the wall, the Trump organization called in half its winter staff one by one to fire them. Quoting former maintenance worker Gabriel Sedano, I told them they needed to consider us. I had worked almost 15 years for them in this club, and I had given the best of myself to this job. I'd never done anything wrong, only work and work. I started to cry, he said. The people who fired him did not. The Trump Organization says it will now weed out undocumented workers who try to get jobs on the president's properties. The Cold War would seem to be on again, more officially, in two days from now. Russia has refused to destroy one of its missiles that is not in compliance with the nuclear arms treaty. The Trump administration gave the Kremlin a deadline of February 2nd to destroy those missiles. It appears the Kremlin will not meet that deadline, meaning the Trump White House will cancel the entire nuclear arms agreement on intermediate-range missiles. In fact, the Kremlin was showing off the new missiles this week. And if you follow nothing else about the situation in Venezuela, know this. The Trump administration, backed by Canada and other countries, has hinted at military action against a leader who jailed his opponents before the election there and then allegedly rigged the election to stay in power. This week, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo told the U.N. Security Council to get behind recognizing Venezuela's opposition leader as the true president of Venezuela. This week, Security Advisor John Bolton was seen holding a yellow legal pad that featured the phrase 5,000 to Colombia, presumably meaning the option of sending 5,000 American troops to the country adjacent to Venezuela. Also know this, Russia has military contractors in Venezuela right now protecting disputed President Nicolas Maduro, which would seem to put the U.S. and Russia on a collision course in Venezuela. 
Salon.com's Bob Seska believes Vladimir Putin's dream of crumbling democracy here in the U.S. is being helped, even unintentionally, by vote-hungry Republicans. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. An epidemic is plaguing the Republican Party these days. For some reason, perhaps it's their consciences or perhaps it's the pressure of backstopping an incompetent nincompoop in the White House. Who knows? It could be anything. Whatever the root cause, it appears as if the Republicans can't stop accidentally blurting the truth. Rudy Giuliani does it every time he's on television. Donald Trump Jr. posted all of his incriminating Russia emails online. Don't get me wrong, I'm not complaining. It's just really damn weird. Collectively, they're all falling into the a few good men trap. They continue to be goaded into belching out what they're really thinking, not unlike the climactic scene in which Jack Nicholson finally admits to ordering the code red that led to the death of a Marine under his command. This time, it's not Rudy Giuliani who did it, but perhaps for the first time, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell let fly with the real reason why Republicans are actively making sure it's as difficult as possible to vote without completely outlawing elections. During a debate over an anti-government corruption bill passed by the House Democrats, a bill that would also make Election Day a federal holiday, McConnell said, quote, Just what America needs, another paid holiday and a bunch of government workers being paid to go out and work on Democratic campaigns. This is the Democrat plan to restore democracy, a power grab, unquote. In other words, if Election Day is a holiday, more people will volunteer for Democrats and more people will vote. And we can't have that, can we? The assumption then is that if more Americans are able to vote, Republicans will lose elections. This is far from being a new concept. There are countless other examples of Republicans derping their true intentions in public on the topic of voting, beginning most famously with Paul Weyrich, co-founder of the Heritage Foundation, who said, quote, I don't want everybody to vote. Elections are not won by a majority of the people. They never have been from the beginning of our country, and they are not now. As a matter of fact, our leverage in the elections quite candidly goes up as the voting populace goes down, unquote. This is the answer to why Republicans have injected the myth of voter fraud into the bloodstream of the national dialogue. Voter fraud is the phony baloney justification for voter ID and other laws restricting or outright disenfranchising millions of eligible voters, most of whom happen to be Democrats. But how often do voters really attempt to scam the system? Among all federal elections between 2002 and 2005, the rate of voter fraud was 0.0000013%. This according to a five-year probe by George W. Bush's Justice Department. Put another way, around 26 people out of 197 million were convicted of attempting to vote illegally during all of those elections. And yet the Republicans continue to screech about voter fraud anyway. By the way, they're willing to believe that voter fraud exists, even though it doesn't. And yet the climate crisis, with its 97 percent scientific consensus, is clearly fiction. Anyway, in Ohio, the Republican secretary of state at the time uncovered a possible 20 cases of voter fraud during the 2012 election out of 5.6 million votes cast. That's 0.00035% of the vote. In Iowa, the secretary of state there found a possible eight cases 
out of 1.5 million votes cast. That's 0.00053% of the vote. In Wisconsin, possible voter fraud amounted to 0.00023% of the vote. But up to 9% of voters will be disenfranchised by voter ID laws. That's using a nuclear missile to kill a gnat. Donald Trump's own voter fraud commission, by the way, led by Chris Kobach, disbanded without finding any cases of actual in-person fraud. Despite the crash and burn of the commission, Red Hats from coast to coast continue to believe three million undocumented immigrants voted in the 2016 election. Trump's personal worm tongue, Stephen Miller, once claimed voters were bussed into New Hampshire from Massachusetts, a claim that received a pants-on-fire rating from PolitiFact. But how do we know for sure that voter ID is about disenfranchising Democrats? Well, of course, they've admitted it. Like always, there was Jim Greer, former chairman of the Florida Republican Party. Quote, the Republican Party, the strategists, the consultants, they firmly believe that early voting is bad for Republican Party candidates. It's done for one reason and one reason only. We've got to cut down on early voting because early voting is not good for us. Us meaning, of course, Republicans. There was Dallas Tea Party activist Ken Emanuelson who admitted, quote, I'm going to be real honest with you. The Republican Party doesn't want black people to vote if they're going to vote nine to one for Democrats, unquote. Back in 2012, there was Republican state representative from Pennsylvania, Mike Terzai, who said, quote, voter ID, which is going to allow Governor Romney to win the state of Pennsylvania, done, unquote. Warning, don't trust your personal secrets to any Republican friends. They'll rat you out and even themselves given enough rope. Seriously, the closer voter turnout is to 100%, the less likely it is that Republicans can win anywhere. Nevertheless, if the GOP can continue to make voting as difficult as possible for minorities and other Democratic-leaning voters, Republicans like Trump will continue to win, even though they don't deserve to win. Make no mistake, none of this is about voter fraud. It's about rigging the game before it's even played. They're pulling a Captain Kirk, altering the Kobayashi Maru test before the fact. This is the real vote rigging, and we can't help but to ask whether it's more than Democrats they hate. With every new voter ID law and every new accidental blurt, they reinforce the notion that Republicans simply hate democracy. If I were a TSA agent who worked without pay while Republicans played grab ass over the wall... I'd make sure a few live snakes were added to McConnell's carry-on. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Bob with a subscription at patreon.com slash Show or Tuesdays and Thursdays at realmnetwork.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I join Bob on his show every Tuesday. Regardless of what it says on your phone, it's two minutes to midnight. I'm referring to the doomsday clock set by scientists to assess how much danger we're in if midnight were the end of life on this planet. The best news you can draw from the reading of 11.58 p.m. is that the minute hand has not moved any closer to midnight in the past year, all things considered. The worst news is that the minute hand hasn't moved back from midnight either, and we are as close to doom now as we were 65 years ago when the Soviet Union tested its first hydrogen bomb. That was the year and the reason the doomsday clock came into being. And its reasons for being this close to the doomsday mark today? First, the threat of a nuclear war with Russia and or North Korea. Second, the climate crisis. 
As this ungodly cold weather dips into the U.S., canceling school and mail service and taking lives, some people have trouble wrapping their heads around the words global warming. The President of the United States is one of those people. As if Mother Nature has a Twitter account, Trump tweeted for global warming to return to spare the good people of the Midwest from the brutal cold. But he and other Americans were unaware that Australia is burning as wildfires rage in record high temperatures. Labor leaders there are asking for a new law to force businesses to close the next time it gets up to 116 degrees. It's hard to envision when it's so cold in the U.S., but this was a record hot year from Algeria to, of all places, Norway. You've heard how the ice caps are melting, how Greenland is melting quickly. You've heard about the pending extinction of the coffee bean because of a warmer climate. Well, right now in the U.S., it's so cold in many places, your flesh can freeze almost instantly. It's too dangerous to even breathe outdoors because the linings of your throat and lungs could get frostburn. And you remember the heat and the wildfires and the devastating hurricanes of the summer, all worse than we remember them being ever before. The warming of the planet through the deterioration of its atmosphere by mankind's use of fossil fuels is giving us increasingly extreme and violent and deadly weather, including the cold. The warming of the planet is why record lows are being set in a record number of American places. Some people have trouble with that concept. The president is one of them. Under his administration, civil penalties for polluters have dropped by 85%. Maroon 5 at the Super Bowl. Ask about our new taco bomb and can I get you a used tissue in the final segment up next. Thank you for using my Amazon link at buzzburbank.com for Valentine's Day and all your shopping year-round at home and at work. Your use of that link helps keep this newscast going and free for the listening, so please bookmark it as your everyday shopping button. I get a small commission from Amazon for every purchase you make that way and for every Amazon Prime membership purchase through me, so it really helps power this free weekly report. Just click the Amazon logo at buzzburbank.com. You'll land right on your very own Amazon page and then bookmark that. On your desktop browser, the Amazon logo on my page is in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. On your phone, it's just under the title, Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Now, if you'd rather not use my Amazon link, then please support this free and independent reporting through the PayPal Donate button. And thank you. A state of emergency has been declared in Washington by its governor, Jay Inslee. The emergency is an outbreak of potentially deadly measles that's already struck more than three dozen children. Within Washington state is a hub of the anti-vax movement. Parents who refuse to allow their children to be vaccinated against measles and other dangerous infectious diseases, usually because of some voodoo they found on the Internet. This refusal, which is legal in 17 states, makes not only those children susceptible to diseases, it puts at risk other children because it is highly and quickly contagious. Measles contamination can remain in the air for up to an hour after a patient has left the room, which is why doctors' offices are telling patients of measles victims not to bring them into the office, but to call instead. Washington State is now taking a second look at this law that lets so many parents opt out of vaccinations for their children. Measles was declared eradicated from the U.S. in 1982. It's back, and the anti-vax movement had a lot to do with that. 
The gun slaughter of young children at Sandy Hook Elementary and the gun slaughter of high schoolers in Florida doesn't begin to cover the numbers. 1,300 children die each year from gunfire in this country, and nearly 6,000 others are wounded. The numbers are up because handgun ownership is up. The more handguns in homes, the more kids die from gunfire. Handgun ownership is up 25% from 1976 to 32% in 2016. Handguns can be found in the homes of 72% of all parents who keep some kind of weapon for protection. And while gun ownership in the U.S. is actually down overall, and even while crime numbers are down, handgun ownership continues to climb. All this according to Pew Research. When someone gets shot, as about 342 Americans do every day, their medical care, if they survive, does not end with that first trip to the emergency room. Because of the risk of infection, more than half of them are back for medical care within 30 days, according to research from Stanford University. Readmissions are expensive. The cost of follow-up treatments for gunshot victims has risen to $86 million a year in the U.S., and that does not include the cost of rehabilitation, medications, devices, and other outpatient services. This cost is covered by taxpayers, insurance companies, and the checking accounts of the again-growing number of Americans without health insurance. Experimental therapies appear to have cured sickle cell disease, one of several deadly health concerns in the African-American community. Scientists have long known that the disease exists because of a gene that shouldn't be there, and yet it is among people of African descent. But now with gene-splicing therapy, scientists believe they are close to a cure. A young patient in New York whose sister died of sickle cell appears to be cured himself after getting this new experimental therapy. Vaping, despite its other risks, is twice as effective as patches or gum for getting people off cigarettes. So says a new study in the New England Journal of Medicine, no less. The Centers for Disease Control says the jury's still out as scientists study the effects of that vapor, and there's still the issue of a growing national addiction to nicotine, especially among young people. Hey, no more jokes or wacky t-shirts, please, about your liver. In the past 15 years, the number of liver transplants linked to alcohol use has doubled, according to researchers at UC San Francisco. And from our I Hear That department, brain researchers say our lack of a good night's sleep has become a major health crisis. Our screens have made it worse. Phones, games, and computers now in addition to TV. And new research at the University of Pittsburgh shows a lack of proper sleep increases our risk of Alzheimer's. Even one night, he says, of sleep deprivation boosts a protein in the brain that creates the poisonous clumps found in the brains of Alzheimer's patients. They found that even reductions in the amount of sleep we get can increase feelings of loneliness. Preschoolers who miss nap time perform poorly in memory games compared to the toddlers who caught some Z's. You can find online reliable tips for better sleep and just how much is right for your age. Researchers, meanwhile, worry that doctors are measuring blood pressure and weight but not asking patients about their sleep. Quoting one, you had that lecture at school about safe sex, drinking, drugs. Why didn't anybody tell you about sleep? On the heels of the government shutdown, there's been a rash of recalls in our food supply. Spinach again, 
because of salmonella again. Also, pizza, sandwiches, and wraps from Whole Foods sold in the northeastern states. FDA.gov has the particulars. General Mills recalled five-pound bags of gold metal flour with an expiration date of April 20th, 2020, because they may be contaminated with salmonella. The general says you should throw that flour away, but that the rest is okay. And the chicken nuggets young children demand are being recalled by both Tyson and Purdue. Purdue's calling them back for a second time in two weeks, this time 16,000 pounds of refrigerated nuggets, partly because they may contain an unnamed allergen. It's the 12-ounce pack with a use-by date of March 11th. Tyson's recalling its nuggets because they may be contaminated with bits of rubber. Stop chewing if they're from the 5-ounce packages with a use-by date of November 26, 2019. Can I get you a used tissue? A new company in Los Angeles is offering people boxes of used tissues for 80 bucks on the promise it will boost their immune systems better than pills or shots. The company's slogan, get sick on your terms. An infectious disease specialist at the Vanderbilt School of Medicine calls the offer a hazardous scheme. With more than 200 common cold viruses that we know of, exposure to one of them will do nothing to protect you from the other 200. Save your 80 bucks, says the infectious disease doctor, adding, this whole thing is a cockamamie idea. When Arizona auto mechanic Cross Scott saw a woman locked in her car unconscious, he broke in and saved her life. He found that she wasn't breathing and he didn't know CPR. And then he remembered an episode of TV's The Office in which the lead character performs CPR to the rhythm of the Bee Gees disco tune, Stayin' Alive. That rhythm, as they teach in CPR classes, is perfect for the chest compressions to revive someone. Like the mechanic, by the way, the lead character's last name in The Office is also Scott. Maroon 5 leads the halftime entertainment at this year's Super Bowl and not without taking some heat for it. Other artists had turned down invitations to perform to protest the league's policy on the take-a-knee protest launched by the now-blackballed Colin Kaepernick to call attention to police brutality against African Americans. Maroon 5 said yes. Traditionally, that means a news conference to let reporters ask questions of big-time recording stars. Out of fear of what reporters might ask this year, the NFL this week abruptly canceled that news conference with Maroon 5. The big game is Sunday. A gay actor from TV's Empire who plays a gay musician on the show was attacked in Chicago this week, and police are investigating it as a possible hate crime. Jesse Smollett was attacked early Tuesday by two people who yelled racial and homophobic slurs, poured bleach on him, and wrapped a noose around his neck. He's out of the hospital now, now assisting police in the investigation. A dozen detectives and the FBI are on the case, and they have found at least one security camera that captured the event, and they are now trying to identify two persons of interest from that video. The two white men allegedly shouted, This is MAGA country, as they walked away. It took 45 minutes for Chicago police to respond to the call. R&B recording artist James Ingram has died too soon from brain cancer. A double Grammy winner, Ingram sang with the Doobie Brothers' Michael McDonald on Yamu Be There and sang with Quincy Jones for the song 100 Ways. He helped Michael Jackson write PYT for the Thriller album. He also sang with Donna Summer, Anita Baker, Nancy Wilson, Natalie Cole, Dolly Parton, and Kenny Rogers. 
He recorded kid songs, James Ingram did, and gospel songs, and he had two number one singles on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100, I Don't Have the Heart, and Baby Come to Me. James Ingram's song ended prematurely at age 66. As we head into February at Black History Month, the massively successful and Oscar-nominated film Black Panther is making its way back into theaters, and in many cases this time, admission is free. It's the producer's gift to us all to honor Black History Month and to thank Americans for flocking to the movie, often, repeatedly. Black Panther will play admission-free at 250 AMC theaters in the first week of February, which starts tomorrow. That's bound to also help when the sequel arrives. One of the best predictor of the Oscars, the Screen Actors Guild, just handed Black Panther the award for Best Cast Ensemble, its closest equivalent to Best Picture. It was up against early favorite A Star is Born, Bohemian Rhapsody, for which Rami Malek won Best Actor, Crazy Rich Asians, and Spike Lee's Black Klansman, for which Mahershala Ali won Best Supporting Actor. It was up against early favorite A Star is Born, Bohemian Rhapsody, for which Rami Malek won Best Actor, Crazy Rich Asians, and Mahershala Ali won Best Supporting Actor for Green Book, which was also nominated for Best Cast. Glass, with Sam Jackson and Bruce Willis, is the biggest movie in theaters this week for a second straight week. Oscar-nominated Green Book is in the middle of the top ten. To see previews, find showtimes, and buy tickets, please click the Fandango logo at buzzburbank.com. Valentine's Day may be less so this year with the vanishing of Candy Hearts and Apple's FaceTime. A 14-year-old boy discovered a flaw in the FaceTime app that allows others to eavesdrop on the device's owner. He discovered that one iPhone user can call another and listen in on that person's conversations, even if that other person never answers the phone. It took Apple a week to respond, but it's out with a bug fix late this week. In the meantime, millions of users have disabled and, when possible, deleted their FaceTime apps. People have also scrambled this past week to scoop up the last of those little pastel candy hearts stamped with mushy stuff like Be Mine and Cutie Pie. Sweet hearts, they're called. The company that made those has a new owner, and the new owner wasn't able to get them out in time for this season. The new owner, Spangler, says the hearts will be re-released in 2020 without the Me Too offensive ones, including Kiss Me and Let's Get Busy. Humorists have proposed new candy hearts with sayings like, no means no, and I'm filing charges. It was heartbreak for 430 would-be students at the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg. They all got letters telling them they'd been accepted. They hadn't. The letters were sent out by mistake. Human error, says the school. About an hour after that first exciting email came another that read, there was an error in the system. Please disregard the previous email. Emails are definitely the less expensive way to go. The price of a first-class forever stamp jumped this week from 50 to 55 cents as part of a system-wide rate hike of 2.5%. A few prices on letters actually dropped several cents. In Kansas City, Missouri, Brian Riley said he heard what sounded like someone's vehicle stuck in ice and snow. He says whoever it was spun the wheels furiously for 15 minutes. It wasn't until Riley's dog started barking that he finally looked outside and saw a U.S. postal truck had burst into flames and rolled down the street into his neighbor's yard. Quoting Riley, for almost 10 minutes straight, he did not let up on the gas. He was pushing it beyond insanity. You could just tell the way he was going. He was getting more and more mad. The Postal Service is investigating. 
in Berlin, Germany. A 33-year-old man stepped out of his train car during a brief stop to smoke a cigarette. But he got locked out of the car when it departed again and found himself caught between two cars, unable to get back inside while the train was in motion. And there he stood, clinging to that train in frigid weather, moving at 125 miles an hour. Rescued at the next stop, the man's been charged with dangerous interference to rail traffic. And police say he was drunk. In New Canaan, Connecticut, a woman was arrested for drunk driving. Not that it matters, but she wasn't actually driving when police spotted her. She was sitting in her car with her eyes closed at an intersection at 4.45 in the afternoon. There were open bottles in the car, several bottles of pure vanilla extract. Because of pure vanilla's high alcohol content, a 50-year-old named Stephanie failed several field sobriety tests. Police say that her speech was slurred and that her breath smelled of vanilla. A drunken man in Maine had the wisdom to take a lift home instead of driving. He still wound up in trouble with the cops because he poured himself into the wrong lift, whereupon he was taken to a home that's not his, whereupon he tried to get inside, thinking it was his place, because he was drunk. Cape Elizabeth Police Chief Paul Fenton says the poor fellow was taken back to the police station until he could sober up. The frightened homeowners, by the way, say they won't be pressing charges. A 34-year-old Madison, Wisconsin man who'd had too much to drink turned angry when he believed his wife had damaged his comic book action figures. He was so angry and drunk, he took an axe to the family car, the TV, and a laptop computer. Police say he did over $5,000 damage to his own possessions, and he's been charged with a felony for that, plus disorderly conduct. The man called the police on himself. Police say he told them he'd had too much to drink and overreacted about the action figures. Police in Pembroke Pines, Florida, are digging for clues after city workers repairing what they thought was a sinkhole discovered a narrow underground tunnel leading toward a Chase Bank. The tunnelers had not quite made it to the bank yet, but they'd begun digging toward the ATM, lighting their way with the help of a generator. Police found the generator and a muddy pair of boots at the entrance to the tunnel in the woods, along with a wagon for hauling away the dirt. Police are now looking for tips from the public on who's done the digging, who who dug it. Quoting one official, So if somebody's been bragging about this, talking about a tunnel, certainly give us a call. A tree may grow in Brooklyn, but a residential neighborhood on New York's Upper West Side has a tree with a couch in it. A sofa, a divan, a davenport, a settee, if you will, 25 feet up in that tree. No one has come forward to say how it got there, and no one else seems to know either. We don't even know if the city has any plans to remove the couch. In Idaho, they're investigating the governor's inauguration. Specifically, the commander of the Idaho National Guard says he's investigating the shockingly loud cannon fire that was part of the gubernatorial swearing-in ceremony. It was loud. It set off car alarms in downtown Boise and scattered Canadian geese into the air, and thousands of people flinched at the booms as the sky above them filled with smoke. Brigadier General Michael Garshak says he's investigating why the cannon fire was so incredibly, painfully loud. And finally, from the home office in Florida, a man and a woman had failed to find the precious metals they were searching for after a day of trawling the Oklawaha River. 
All they'd found were a few pieces of scrap metal and a World War II hand grenade, often called a pineapple grenade. Instead of calling police, the couple put the scraps and the grenade in the trunk of their car and made a run for the border, meaning the nearest Taco Bell in Ocala. They had apparently also worked up an appetite and, well, you know, priorities. It was at Taco Bell, with innocent bystanders present, the couple finally called the Ocala police. The cops say the grenade was so badly corroded it likely wouldn't have detonated, but they took it to a remote place and blew it up anyway just to be on the safe side. Ocala police then issued an all-clear by tweeting, and I quote, Taco Bell has reopened. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and for supporting this free news at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.